Please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. And as John gets a peek into the future, here is what he sees now. A shadow left by the gloom of a heavenly war in chapter 12. The war in heaven. The worldwide deception of people in chapter 13 of the Antichrist and his false prophet gives way to the bright, glorious scene of victory in chapter 14. And the one message of chapter 14, perhaps, is Christ is triumphant and all of God's people sing when they recognize the victory of the Lord Christ. Chapter 14, verse 1, I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men. They were firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit or guile or falsehood, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So in chapter 13 we have the beast and uh, the false prophet, the two beasts. And in chapter 14, we have the lamb, gentle at Zion. In chapter 13, we have the counterfeit. In chapter 14, we have the true and the genuine. Chapter 13, you have the mark of the beast during the tribulation period. Chapter 14, you have those honored who carry the name of God, the mark of God in their foreheads. Chapter 13 is the work of idolatry, and the false prophet leads folks to worship a beast image, to worship the Antichrist. Chapter 14, they're all worshiping the Lamb. Chapter 13, they're following the beast to damnation. Chapter 14, they're the redeemed from the earth, following the Lord Christ, following the Lamb. So it's rather striking. I looked and behold, John said. Behold what I saw. Now remember, he's seeing the future. He's seeing the tribulation period when the Antichrist and the false beast will be unveiled. And during the first three and a half years, then they'll be allowed to continue for 42 months or three and a half years. So that makes seven years of tribulation. And now here at the end of the tribulation, John is getting a picture of what's going to happen as all of those who have come out of the tribulation. Now remember, the church has been raptured, but the gospel will be preached by 144,000 faithful who come out of every one of the 12 tribes, 12,000 from each tribe, 12 times 12 students is always 144, right? It's one of the first things I ever learned in math. There's some other things I don't know about math, but I do remember that. 12,000 from each, and they're faithful Jewish evangelists during the tribulation period. So here we have the heavenly scene to show that Christ will be triumphant. Now, look at the scene with me in chapter 14. 
There are the 144,000. Notice these are the same ones that are identified in chapter 7. Hold your hand here and go back to chapter 7. In chapter 7, verse 4 of Revelation, I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. And then lists all the tribes, Judah, Reuben, Gad, and so forth. Now, these 144,000 here in chapter 7 are seen at the beginning of the tribulation, this great time of judgment upon the earth. But notice chapter 7, verse 4. The 144,000 are what? They are sealed. God says, I'm going to take the faithful and make sure that they make it through tribulation and trial and suffering and persecution of the Antichrist and that they're faithful. They are sealed. Thank God not a one of them is lost. When God seals his own, he seals you for all time. As Jesus said, these are mine whom the Father has given me and none is lost. When you are saved, you are sealed with the mark of God, the Holy Spirit, and none will be lost. God has purposed you shall pass through tribulation and not be lost. You shall go through difficulty, but not be lost. And it's true in the tribulation period in the future, but it's just as true today. I am saved and sealed. And you got 144,000 in chapter 7 at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. And in chapter 14, you don't have 143,999. How many have you got, class? 144,000. Not a one is lost. Not one. Back to chapter 14. You not only have the 144,000, here's the lamb, verse 1. There's the lamb. <laughs> it's the, the lamb. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Lamb who in chapter 5 is worthy to open the seals. This is the Lamb who in chapter 7 is worthy to receive glory and honor and worship of all of God's hosts. This is the Lamb. It's the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Then you have the elders in glory. Look in chapter 3 of 14. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures. Those are the cherubim around the worship of God's throne and the elders. Twenty-four there were, remember? Twenty-four, representing all the community of God up to this time. Twelve patriarchs are represented of Israel and the twelve apostles of the church. Twenty-four, and they're there. They are already there in heaven. So you have the 144,000, you have the lamb, you have the, uh, the elders, and you have the four living creatures and the angels. They represent all the angels who serve the Lord. And I'll tell you, there's probably one other group there, and that is why when they sing a song, you go from a voice in verse 2 to the plural in verse 3. They sang a song. I want to suggest that there probably was another group. Back in chapter 7, you see all of these elements in glory. There's 144,000 in verse 4. But in verse 9, you see this great multitude who are going to come out of the tribulation and be faithful to God. They're of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, and they're standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they're clothed with white robes. So here in chapter 7, you've got in the picture at the beginning of the tribulation, John sees what God's going to do during this time. 
There's 144,000. The Gentile multitudes, in verse 9, who have been led to Christ, have been led to know God during the tribulation by the 144,000. Then you have the angels in verse 11, the elders in verse 11, all the same five elements. There they are in glory. And in chapter 14, we see the tribulation coming to an end. The Antichrist has been released to the earth, the false prophet, but the 144,000 have been faithful. Now look at where they, they, uh, they join together. Look in verse 1. There's a lamb, and where is he standing? He is not in glory at the right hand of the Father. He is on Mount Zion. Now Mount Zion is, where, is, is that part where David, was, David made it his city. It represents the millennial reign of Christ. He is on Mount Zion. Hold your hand here and turn back to Hebrews Look at Hebrews for just a moment, and let me give you the picture of how the New Testament, even the saints who were not of Israel, they saw Mount Zion. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews says that these saints, which include us, all of us of this age, have come to Mount Zion. He is saying that Israel went to Sinai and they couldn't touch the mountain. They didn't have access to God. They were scared because God revealed the, the Ten Commandments. But saints, along with all of the saved of all time, will gather at Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men who by that time will have been made perfect. We have access into the presence of God. So Mount Zion represents three things. First, it represents the city from which Christ will reign during his millennial kingdom. He's coming back. That's what this is about. This is a picture of the end of the tribulation. Christ comes and puts an end to war and sets up his kingdom. But secondly, Mount Zion represents the city of God as it represents the city of, of Israel. It is the new Jerusalem, which we're going to see in chapter 22. It represents the place that God will make for all the redeemed of all the time to come together. When I get to the city of God, I want to have a talk with Peter. I'd like to have a talk with Paul. I'd love to ask Jeremiah some questions, wouldn't you? And that leads me to the third observation. Mount Zion always represents the place where the people of God all come together. So from the standpoint of the end of the tribulation, this is the beginning of the millennial reign when the Lamb is returned and sets up His kingdom. But for all of us, it represents something larger. It's where God's people will come together. I love that old hymn. We don't sing it much anymore. It used to be in the old Broadman-shaped notes hymnal. Come we that love the Lord. You remember, we're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. That's it. We're marching upward to Zion, the beautiful, who knows the rest, city of God. So here is Zion, where Christ shall rule and reign and put an end to war and an end to violence. Thank God. That's why he reveals this. Sometime if you want a history of Mount Zion, read Psalm 132. 
In fact, I, I got to reading on Mount Zion and forgot what I was supposed to be doing. I got a whole message on Mount Zion. I'm just going to stop and preach it on what Zion means. I love the word Zion. So now we have the Lamb on Mount Zion. We have all the elements. And something happens now. I heard a voice from heaven. And notice three things. It was like the voice of waters, the voice of loud thunder, the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they, all of the hosts, sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song. Now, now that's curious. No one could learn. So evidently, leading the song is the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. The Greek word is manthano. It means to hear deeply. It is what happens when I hear something and ingest something and apply something. You know, sometimes I can just hear something. Shirley said to me the other day, Something, I forget what, oh, she was referring. My daughter-in-law gave me some ice cream soda glasses from the new Reading China and whatever that, have you been in that store? Boy, leave your money at home. I love old-fashioned sodas, don't you? I just love to take fat-free ice cream and fat-free chocolate syrup and fat-free soda and fat-free um, a whipping cream out of the can and make myself a good, delicious, lovely, fat-free chocolate soda. Yuck. <laughs> but anyway, my daughter-in-law gave me some ice cream soda glasses and she had moved everything in the kitchen and she had told me where they were, but I wasn't listening. I didn't manfano. I didn't digest or take it in. So when I wanted some, I had to go looking all over the kitchen. And she said to me, I told you where they were. Manthano. The 144,000, because they're singing a song of redemption and deliverance, had ingested. They had been through trials. They had been through suffering. They had taken everything the Antichrist could throw at them and had been sealed, so they came out victorious, and they're singing a song of redemption. God's people always sing songs when they're happy. When Moses and the children of Israel came through the wall of water and out of Egypt, and headed to the promised land, what did they do in Exodus chapter 15? They sang a song of deliverance. They sang a song. When the children of Judah were in Babylon in the Chaldean captivity, their captors ordered them to go down by the river and sing a song. And do you remember what they said? How can we sing the song of Zion in a strange land? We have nothing to sing about. And do you remember when uh, Jehoshaphat had been told that the Seerites and the Moabites 
were all gathered at En Gedi in an ambush of him in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. The Bible says he put the soldiers at the back and the ministers of the music, Dean Brown and Larry White at the front, and they marched into battle with the musicians on the front side. But what were they doing? Do you remember? They were singing praise to God in anticipation of the victory God would give them. Oh, if we could just learn how to sing. When Paul was talking about the filling of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5, he said, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you will sing songs and you will sing hymns and you will sing spiritual songs, Zode Numatakai. You will sing spiritual songs. Some of you think that we're getting way out on a limb by singing praise choruses on the Lord's Day morning. Those are Ode Numatakai. They are spiritual songs of praise. Precisely what Paul mentioned. Hymns, yes. Songs, yes but spiritual songs, Ode Numatakai. We are celebrating our deliverance. And if you can't sing, you got a problem. I want this church always to be known as a singing church. Learn to take your bulletin with your hymn book so you can pass from all hail the power of Jesus' name to he is Lord. Because you can't sing and criticize in the same voice. You can't run your wife down when you're singing praise. You ever get in a church conference and somebody gets negative and attacking somebody, stand up and start singing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. The criticism will stop immediately. Negativism and criticism cannot stand in the face of praise of Almighty God. Did you know that? And when your husband starts criticizing your meal, start singing. Sing. Praise to God. It's a, always a sign of deliverance, always a sign of redemption in the people of God. And that's what the 144,000. See, nobody could sing the song except those who were redeemed from the earth during that tribulation period. Now I want to just share with you the five characteristics of these 144,000 in the time we have left. And by that answer the question, how can we sing a song, a new song of praise, and how can we keep the song? And here's the song, whatever they were singing, it was the song of songs. It was the song of ultimate praise. Beethoven wrote nine symphonies, and Brahms wrote one, and they called it the completion of Beethoven, and they called it the tenth symphony, completing his work of praise. This is like Beethoven's 10th, written by Brahms. This picture is at the end of the tribulation. Number one, there are five characteristics of those that are going to sing a song. Number one, verse four, or, or verse one, rather. They had their father's name written on their foreheads. They, we must wear God's name. If we're going to sing God's song, we must wear God's name. They had the Father's name written on their foreheads. In chapter 13, during the tribulation, they had the mark of the beast. In chapter 14, they have the name of God. And it's where everybody can see it. 
on their foreheads. Barclay said that there were five things that characterized a mark that a mark was used for. Number one, it means ownership. It means they belong to God. Number two, it means loyalty. They were loyal to God during the tribulation, during the great persecution. Number three, the mark means security. Number four, the mark meant dependence. And number five, the mark meant safety. I was thinking of this the other day when I read on one of, in one of James Dobson's publications about a father who took his young teenage girl out and gave her a ring to remind her that she was a pure virgin and to symbolize her vow to keep her purity. Wasn't that it? The girl wore the ring. And whenever some little fellow was going to try to talk her out of her moral position and tell her how much he loved her, she would look down and see that mark, something to stand for ownership, loyalty, security, dependence, and safety where God's name. Soon as that little granddaughter of mine was born the other week, Emily Lauren Quartz, the eighth grandchild, I wanted to look at that little girl and I raised up the back of her head and looked. And VJ says, what, what, what are you looking for? And can you see that, Lori, on the back of my neck? What do you see right there under my hairline? There's a what? what do you, you know what that is? That's a birthmark. It's a birthmark. And every quartz ever born in the world has got a little birthmark right under the hairline. Every quartz, every quartz, every one of my family has that. That would have been a good excuse for me to wear long hair and a ponytail. How many of you have put up with a ponytail preacher? <laughs> huh? But see, it's a mark that I'm a quartz. And I looked knowing before I looked that if she was Emily Lauren Quartz, what was on the back of that head? The birthmark, there it is. You can see it. You can see it. Secondly, the, if we're going to sing God's song, we must keep God's purity. That's what they did. Now, notice the Bible says that these were virgins in verse 4, not defiled with women. Now, this is a picture, parthenoi is the word virgins, but it's a picture of faithfulness from defiling idols. During the tribulation period, God sees, as he's always seen, 2 Kings 19, Israel is a picture of a virgin faithful to God. And in Jeremiah chapter 3, when Israel goes after idols, she is a harlot and not a virgin. So don't take this literally, take it symbolically. They were not defiled with the idol of the beast in the tribulation period. They did not accede. They were pure. Whoever is going to sing God's song must wear God's name and keep God's purity. They kept themselves from defiling relationships. If I could go back and live my teenage years over one more time, I want to tell you, young people, 
There's one thing that'll do more damage than anything else, and that is defiling friendships. There is a humongous tension here in the Christian life. On the one hand, we want our young people to tell others about Christ and make friends with others. But on the other hand, we don't want them to be in a defiling relationship. The crowd can lead you down a primrose path. Whatever you do, you can make friends with unbelievers, but you better make sure you've got a strong network of relationships to hold you accountable. And you need it in high school and you need it in college. That's why my kids always wondered why we would ask them, who are you going with? Who are you going with? What difference does it make to you, Mom? I'll tell you, it makes all the difference in the world to good old Dad. Because defiling relationships can lead you down a path you don't want to go. And it's true of adults. And it was true in the tribulation period. Select your friends carefully, but set limits to every relationship. John, you're my friend, but there are some things I will not do. When you go to a party and they start breaking out the cocaine and they start breaking out the marijuana, that is when you part the relationship at that point becomes a defiling relationship. And at whatever point the friendship begins to influence you more than you influence the friend, you better draw the line and get out of it. If you're going to sing God's song, you must gladly wear God's name and keep God's purity. Third, if you're going to sing God's song, if you're going to keep a song in your heart, you must follow God's lamb. Notice in verse 4, these are the ones who follow not the beast, but the lamb wherever he goes. Follow the lamb. Now, the figure itself is an anachronism of sorts. Lambs are not leaders. Lambs are followers. So when he says, follow the lamb, he is emphasizing the sacrificial nature of the work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Follow the lamb. So Jesus said, as I do the will of God, so you follow me. If any man will come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Follow me. Follow the Lamb. Paul said it this way. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And it's not wrong for you as a Christian to have people imitate you. Somebody is following you. Everybody in this room is a role model for someone else. I've been laughing at the debate going on among professional athletes as to whether they should be a role model. And uh, Charles Barkley said, I don't want to be a role model for anybody. And uh, then along comes Joe Dumas, and he says, yeah, I'm a role model. Whether I want to be or not, I'm a role model. I agree with him. Everybody here has somebody who looks up to you. And whether you want to be or not, you are a role model. And you will lead somebody based upon who you're following. And if you're following the Lamb, the Bible says you'll always have a new song. Fourth, If you're going to sing a new song, you must return God's sacrifice. They were redeemed, verse 4, from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. First fruits to God and to the Lamb. Now look at the picture. Redemption, agarazzo, redeemed, and first fruits. More to follow, but first fruits also means sacrifice. So these are the first symbolizing those who will follow the Lamb in the millennial reign 
I believe it's the first of a brand new era. I think the 144,000 are going to go preaching during the tribulation. And sometime there's going to be a great, great revival. Now, you and I as a church will be raptured off the earth. But there's going to be an unprecedented revival. Oh, there'll be a whole Gentile throng who'll turn to the gospel. 144,000 evangelists. In spite of the beast who is the Antichrist and the beast who is the false prophet. And these who are saved and these who are the faithful messengers will be the first fruits of a brand new era, the millennial reign. That is why we have a song that the world doesn't know anything about. That is why the 144,000 had a song that the angels didn't know anything about. Because angels have never been redeemed as we've been redeemed. Have you ever heard that song? There is singing up in heaven such as we have never known. Where the angels join the chorus of the Lamb around the throne. Their sweet harps are ever tuneful and their voice is always clear. Oh, that we might be more like them while we serve the Master here. Holy, this isn't on the new pop charts. This is about 173 years old. Holy, holy is what the angels sing. And I expect to help them make the courts of heaven ring. But when I sing redemption's story, they will fold their wings. For angels never knew the joy that our salvation brings. That's it. You know where that song came from? came from Revelation 14. Angels have never been redeemed. They don't have the song to sing that you have. Songs come out of God's grace to us. Songs come out of what the Lord's done for us. The moments when a song just brings out of me every, everything I have in a sense of gratitude. I was sitting on that pew right there when the choir sang Tuesday. How many of you were here Tuesday night? Now, I want to tell you something. If you weren't aware of it, there was something going on that was out of your control and my control. Did you realize that? That choir and orchestra took us to heaven and dropped us off with no transfer token. I was sitting on that pew and they sang four straight songs and something happened. This place was electric. It was like the Shekinah glory was in here. And every song took me closer to the Lord. It was, it was unspeakably, unspeakably worshipful. And I leaned back and Jack Taylor, who wrote Keys to Triumphant Living and 25 other books, had just spoken. And he was sitting on the pew right next to me, right there on that front pew. And he had his head leaned back and they were singing. And I had my eyes closed and I said, somebody's whistling. And I looked over, and here is this dignified author whistling along with your song. Did you hear it? Did you want it? Or did you just think it was birds in the attic? And I looked around, and I thought, where is this coming from? He was so ecstatically happy in the Lord that he was whistling. I have never whistled in church, but I might try it sometime. That's what happens when the redeemed sing God's song. I think that's what heaven's going to be like. And I experience moments like that every now and then. I'm sorry that you all weren't here for the State Evangelism Conference, but that happened Tuesday night, and it was incredibly close to heaven. Well, I must close. The fifth thing is they fulfilled God's standard. If we're going to sing a new song, 
We must fulfill God's standards, verse 5. And in their mouth was found no deceit, no guile. You remember Nathaniel in John chapter 1? In him was found no guile. And they are without fault, no blemish before Christ. Have you got a song in your heart? If you want to be able to sing a new song to the Lord, there are five things that I learned from these 144,000 Jewish evangelists of the tribulation period. We must wear God's name proudly. We must keep God's purity. No defiling relationships. We must follow God's lamb. We must return God's sacrifice. As Christ is the first fruits, we are the first fruits. We're the first fruits. There are more to come until Jesus comes. And in the tribulation, there'll be more to come. And in the millennial, there'll be more to come until God is finished. And finally, we must fulfill God's standards. And then we experience victory. The victory of of Christ, just as these 144,000 experienced it. Do you remember when The Hiding Place, the film, came out? And it was premiered in Hollywood, and all the big shots of the Christian era were there, except you and me. Just thought I'd throw that in, make you feel good. And because it tells the story of how her family hid Jews from the Germans in Holland during World War II. Somebody purposely set off a huge timed smoke bomb in the theater. And it delayed the premiere showing of the film and everybody had to file out of the theater and the fire department searched the whole place. And they were all standing out there and Billy Graham was there to introduce it. And he said, where is Cliff Barrows? We ought to sing while we're standing out here. And Pat Boone was standing just a few feet away, and she, he said, I'm here. What about me? Think I could? <laughs> yeah, not bad. <laughs> and so they started singing, How Great Thou Art. And then a reporter who had been there to cover the showing of the, of the film went to Corey Ten Boom and said, what is your reaction to this? She said, it doesn't bother me. She held up this sign and she said, Jesus is victor. No matter the tribulation, Jesus is the victor. No matter the persecution on the 144,000, they came through because they were sealed to God and he was triumphant. And you and I are triumphant when we can sing God's song of redemption because we wear his name, we keep his purity, we follow his lamb, we return his sacrifice, we fulfill his standards. Amen? Let's stand. Father in heaven, speak to each of us. Where we're lacking victory in our lives, encourage us. Where we're depressed, Help us to sing again the song because of our relationship with you. By faith to sing when we're down. By faith to sing when we're persecuted. Speak to that lost boy or girl, a man or woman who does not know Jesus Christ in a personal way, who has never confessed and repented of his sin and has no song of redemption to sing. Help them to open up their hearts and see that Christ paid the price for their sin. 
draw them to himself in Jesus' name.